Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. On this Communion Sunday, I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Judges chapter 13 as we continue in our series through this book. We come to the story of the last and probably the most famous judge this morning, although we won't tackle his whole life. This morning, we've so far been through Othniel, we've been through Ehud, Barak, we've been through Gideon and Jephthah, plus several very minor, barely mentioned judges. And each of them has rescued Israel from the oppression that came as a result of their, their sin. And each of the judges that we have studied, in many ways, though used by God, have mirrored the downward spiral into greater sin and idolatry that's characterized Israel as a whole. And that trend of downward spiral is going to continue with the life of Samson. Now, of all the judges in the book of Judges, Samson's life is told in the greatest detail. We know more about his life than any other. And these details, of course, if you are familiar with the story, range from the exciting to the dramatic to the sordid. Samson's story most certainly would win the prize for most likely to be turned into a Netflix miniseries. But Samson's story starts here in Judges 13. And Judges 13 says almost nothing about Samson himself. This chapter is something like the calm before the storm. Before we descend into utter chaos over the final eight chapters of this book, chapter 13 draws our attention fully and squarely onto the character of God. And that will be our focus this morning. So if you would, in your Bibles, follow along. Let's read together Judges chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. 
And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Now Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. And then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son, and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter of your Word, and we ask that you would speak to us in it, that you would use your Word to strengthen our hearts, to bring us to faith in you, and to make us more like you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Murder mysteries in superhero movies often share a similar plot line. Early in the story, some crimes are committed, and the investigator or the the superhero may discover some of the criminals involved in the plot early on. But only at the end of the story, usually in a surprising twist, do we discover the main villain, a character we never expected, who's been pulling the strings behind the scenes the entire time. In the novel The Zebra-Striped Hearse, murder mystery some of you may have read. For instance, private investigator Lou Archer winds his way through an increasingly convoluted plot and and increasing crimes only to discover in the end that the murderer was the last person you would expect, the man who hired him to investigate in the first place. Or perhaps you think of the first Iron Man movie. We find out There, that Tony Stark's kidnapping and the use of his weapons by terrorists was not the work of the terrorists, but of his own company manager, who'd been working behind his back and running the whole operation. Well, in the Samson story, Samson's going to garner a lot of the attention. What with his burning fields with foxes and ripping out city gates and revealing secrets to double agent lovers and so on. But Samson is not the main character of the story. He's not the one pulling the strings or the one driving the action. 
And unlike a good murder mystery, it's not the villain who needs to be revealed, but the real hero. And unlike a good murder mystery, the Bible doesn't wait till the end of the story to reveal the real hero. He reveals him right up front before the story even gets going. Because right here in Judges 13, we find out that the real hero of the story is not the guy carrying out all this dramatic action, but is the God of Israel, who is sovereignly at work through Samson in every action that he does on behalf of his people. And my goal today is that we would find joy and comfort and assurance in the character of this God as he reveals himself in chapter 13. So let's start with verses 1 through 7, where we see God's grace on display and an undeserved rescue. Verse 1, we read what we've read so often, don't we? The people of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord again hands them over to the Philistines, this time for 40 years. Sin, handing over, oppression, distress. Same story, sixth verse. We've seen it again and again. But there's a difference in this episode than all six before it. And it should jump out at us. With Othniel, Ehud, and Barak, we read the same thing. God handed them over to their enemies. Then Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord raised up a deliverer. Gideon, Israel, cried out for help. God sent a prophet to confront their hearts, but then a deliverer. Jephthah, Israel, cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord challenged their empty repentances and then sent a deliverer. What's missing in this story that was there in every story before it? Israel never cries out to the Lord for help. Now, we've already talked about some skepticism over whether Israel's cries for help really reflected a genuine repentance before, but the fact remains, in every situation leading up to this, Israel cried to the Lord and asked for rescue. Here, there's not even an attempt. There is no mention of Israel turning to the Lord or asking for help at all. In fact, apparently, Israel is so comfortable living like the Canaanites under the Canaanites, with the Canaanite gods, that they don't even think to cry out to the Lord to rescue them. Or at least if they are oppressed by the situation, they certainly aren't turning to the Lord. That's what a perfect picture of our sin, isn't it? Enslaved to our sin, making the best of life in our sin, maybe even enjoying our sin, unaware apart from the mercy of God that we need to be rescued in the first place. And if we do understand the pain of our situation, certainly not thinking of the God of Israel as the one we need. And yet, in the face of this rejection, or at least this disinterest in their God, apart from any act of Israel to cry out to the Lord, the Lord acts. And he does so out of his own good pleasure. He does so out of his completely undeserved kindness for the sake of his people. And here we see the heart of God. Here we see his amazing grace. Here we see the only reason any of us has for for hope in life. For if the Lord only helped those who came to their senses first and asked him for help, we would all be without hope. But the glory of our God and the good news of the Bible is that while each one of us is born, again doing evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord acted in his purposes to save his people 
Save people like us who have nothing to offer and have done nothing to deserve it at all. And that's what God does in verse 2. All Israel is going about their everyday business, contentedly living with the Philistines, under the Philistines, and with Baal as their gods, when the angel of the Lord shows up to the wife of Manoah of the tribe of Dan, who was barren, and announces a coming child. Now immediately, a few things should stand out to us here in verses 2 through 4. First, in the Bible, you will notice that there is a theme. Whenever a woman is introduced with a specific comment that she was barren, immediately the Lord promises a child. Every time. And every time that child turns out to play a significant role in God's plan of salvation. Just, just think back through. Genesis 11. We are introduced to Sarah, who was barren. But God had called Abraham and Sarah to be a patriarch of his people and promised a son through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Isaac was born in Sarah's old age, a child of promise. And you think of Isaac's wife, Rebekah, who was barren. But then the Lord blessed her, answered Isaac's prayer, and she gave birth to Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of God's people. Jacob's wife, Rachel, then was barren for many years. But then the Lord gave her a child, Joseph, who was the one that the Lord sent ahead to Egypt to rescue his people so that they would be preserved and his promises would be kept alive through famine. First Samuel chapter 1, Hannah is introduced as barren. But after she prays, the Lord gives her a son, Samuel, who is the one who is a prophet bringing the word of the Lord to Israel and specifically the one who ushers in David the man after God's own heart who would foreshadow the Messiah who would come for his people. In Luke chapter 1, we meet Elizabeth who was barren, but an angel announced to her that she would have a son who was John the Baptist who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy and prepared the way for the Messiah himself. And so you see this theme throughout all Scripture. So when we're introduced to the wife of Manoah and we're told she's barren, And then we find out that the angel announces to her a son is coming. We should expect that the son of Manoah and his wife will play a significant role in God's plan of salvation. And it should call to mind God's promises and God's continued faithfulness to act, to bring to fruition his promises that began way back in the Garden of Eden, that he would send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and the curse of sin and death. Now, maybe you're thinking, God, that's, that's a great survey of Scripture, and I get it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, John the Baptist, huge players in the history of redemption. But Samson? Samson is a rather sinful character who seems to just carry out random vendettas against the Philistines, as we'll see in the next few chapters. What, what, why is this an important point in God's plan of salvation? But it is. And I think we need to understand it as such. Because if you think back to Genesis 11, the first time that this barren woman motif began, think of what had happened. The Tower of Babel had just happened. God had just dispersed the people across the face of the earth. Judgment and sin ruled the day. And yet it was in 
the face of judgment and sin ruling the day that God called a barren woman to have a son and raised up a people for himself out of his own grace and good pleasure. Well, in the same way, here in Judges 13, Israel again does evil and is handed over to judgment, and this time they don't even ask for help. Sin and judgment are ruling the day. And yet, in the same way, God, into that context, acts. See, God is not going to let His chosen people melt away into the Philistines. God is not going to leave them completely to their sin and destruction. And so, In the face of sin and judgment, he raises up a son of a barren woman to fight against the Philistines and to preserve his people and his promises. Now, I do think the comment in verse 5, if you look at verse 5, is significant. You'll notice the angel of the Lord says that this son will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. He's not going to complete the task. Samuel and then David will complete the task. But Samson will keep Israel from falling completely into step with the Philistines. Samson, by fighting against the Philistines and raising up continued conflict between Israel and the Philistines, is going to keep the distinction between God's people and the Canaanites around them alive. And this is the grace of God at work in his way and his time as he preserves his promises and works out his plan of salvation. All according to his own grace. Now, before we move on, I want to just make a brief comment about this Nazarite vow. The angel tells the wife of Manoah that the child is to be a Nazarite for life. Now, the Nazarite vow, which you can read more about in Numbers chapter 6, was a commitment to abstain from three things. You were to abstain from cutting your hair, drinking wine, and coming near a dead body. And you were to abstain from those things typically as a voluntary vow for a limited time in order to commit yourself to the Lord or focus with particular intensity on the Lord for that time. But notice, of course, that Samson's vow of the Nazarite Nazarite commitment is to characterize his whole life. His whole life is to be dedicated to the Lord, not just a particular time. And I want to make sure you notice what I think is an important point If Samson's whole life is to be dedicated to the Lord, then the vow cannot start at birth. If his whole life is to be committed to the Lord, it has to start in the womb. So that Samson's mother is told that she has to keep the Nazarite vow because if she drinks wine and it contacts Samson in the womb, he will have violated the vow. Now, two weeks ago, I mentioned in my video on the sanctity of human life that Scripture consistently speaks of life beginning at conception, not at birth, and treats children in the womb as human beings. And this is another example of that, where Samson, in order to keep the vow, has to keep it in the womb so that the mother has to keep the vow herself. In fact, I think if you combine this passage with last week's story of Jephthah, who killed his daughter and felt that it made perfect sense to do so to save him from difficulty in life, You could get a thorough biblical theology on abortion right here in the middle of Judges. But I don't want us to miss the importance of this Nazarite vow, which starts in the womb. But with that comment, let's move on to the text, to verses 8 through 20. We've seen the grace of God at work. Now we want to see God's goodness to hear his people and give them what they need. 
In verse 8, after his wife has shared the angel's announcement, Manoah prays to God because he wants more details. And you get the feeling that Manoah here is a man of action. He's, he's a man who wants answers and he wants to know exactly what the game plan is. You know, what's this kid's mission? What is his manner of life? Who is the man of God and how do we get access to him? You, see, you get all these questions here from, from Manoah. And so he prays to God. Of course, God had already answered the questions Manoah needed. But do you notice God's goodness? It says Manoah prays. And then it says in verse 9, God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came to the woman again. And that phrase, God listened to the voice of Manoah, should astound us. God is the high and exalted one, the one whose name is wonderful, the one who works wonders who rides on the clouds of heaven in perfect purity and power. And this God listens to the voice of his anxious people, and he responds. And so he, he sends the angel of God again to Manoah and his wife. But notice that while Manoah's questions certainly make sense, the angel of God doesn't answer a single one of them. He says, I already told you what you need to know. Your wife knows what she needs to do. Let her obey what I commanded her. Notice also that the angel of God refuses to eat the meal that Manoah tries to offer him and refuses to tell Manoah his name. And most likely this was trying to communicate to Manoah that this is not going to be a typical host-guest relationship where the guest leaves and perhaps has some reciprocal obligation to the host. No, that's not the case here. Because God deserves worship and obedience, and he is not obligated to Manoah in any way. But I want us to note here that while God does not answer Manoah's questions, he's not dodging Manoah's questions. God here is not like Mirabelle in the new Disney movie Encanto, who dodges the kid's questions about her gift so she doesn't have to give an honest answer. That's not God here. No, God is more like the wise parent who's just told his child of an exciting opportunity and the child in her excitement and anxiety wants to know the answer to every question under the sun about what's coming. And the parent, knowing that it will just distract her and perhaps make her more anxious, just says, relax, you don't need to know those details right now. All you need to know is that I'm going with you and you should go pack just like I told you to. God in his wisdom knows that Manoah does not need a dinner conversation with all the details about Samson's life. What he needs is a reverence for the name of the Lord so that he will fear him, trust him, and obey him. And so the angel of the Lord instructs Manoah to offer a sacrifice. And then he rises up to heaven in the flame of the offering while Manoah and his wife are watching. And immediately they fall on their face, realizing this is none other than the Lord that has appeared to them. And so here we have God. He has not given the couple the answers to their questions, but he has given them a vision of the majesty of God that they might worship him, trust him, and obey him. And that is what they really need. I think, again, this is such a beautiful picture of the character of God and such a helpful reminder for us. Because how many times do we have questions for God? How many times do we cry out in our confusion, wanting answers? How many times do we have desires that we pray to God for? How many times do we question whether God is even listening because he doesn't seem to be answering our cries? But the God of Manoah and his wife is our God as well. 
His character does not change. So when we pray, perhaps in our pain or confusion, perhaps in our desires, this passage reminds us that as miraculous as it may seem, the God who works wonders listens to the voice of His people. And this God continues to listen to the voice of His people. And this God will meet His people with the same compassion and faithfulness that He met Manoah. Not to give us all the answers we think we need, nor to give us the things we might think we need, but to give us exactly what we do need out of His sovereign wisdom and out of His goodness. Of course, often that's not answers, but it is always a clearer vision of the Lord Himself, the One who is wonderful, that we too might fear Him worship Him, trust Him, and obey Him. And so in these verses, we see the goodness and the faithfulness of God to give us what we need. But as the chapter comes to a close, Manoah is worried that he and his wife are going to die. After all, God told Moses in Exodus thirty-three twenty that if you see my face, you will die. So Manoah's concern makes sense, but God has not appeared in all of His glory. He has sent what we believe is His Son, the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity and a pre-incarnate image of the invisible God. And so they do not die. And as Manoah's wife reminds him, God would not have told us this exciting news to raise up a son from us if he meant to kill us. And here Manoah's wife, I think, reminds us of God's sovereignty to bring all things about according to his plan. See, if God is at work, If God has come and spoken to us, she says, He has a plan and we can trust it. In fact, if we would ask, why does judges spend so much time on the life of Samson? I think the answer surely begins with the fact that God wants His people to realize that He didn't just see His people in pain and decide at last minute to sort of act and inject some cortisone in the situation to relieve the pain. No, this whole story of Samson was God's idea from before Samson's birth. God is planning this rescue of his people before Samson's even born. God is the one who comes to Manoah and his wife. God is the one who announces this plan. God is the one who brings it about. God is the one leading and directing for his people's good. And that's what verse 25 emphasizes for us, that Samson, even as a child, as he begins to grow, the Spirit of the Lord begins to stir him preparing him for what's to come. This is the Lord's work from beginning to end. Even even the whole motif through Scripture of a barren woman giving birth to a child is a reminder with each successive step in God's plan that we could not bring about God's plan of redemption in any way. This salvation is a miraculous work done by His power according to His will to bring salvation to His people even when they don't deserve it. And we're reminded of that sovereign goodness of the Lord again and again and again. You know, I said at the beginning of this this chapter that this chapter is a bit like a calm before the storm. As the final eight chapters of Judges after this are going to be some of the most sinfully destructive and ugly chapters in all of Scripture. But the calm before a storm is a time to prepare for the storm. The calm before the storm is a time to brace yourself with what you need to make it through the storm. And this chapter does just that. It prepares us and gives us the solid ground to stand on 
as we work through the chapters that are to come. Because this chapter gives us a vision of a God who is sovereign, who is gracious, who is good, who is at work amongst his sinful people, who has not abandoned his promises. And so in the midst of all that's about to come, we can stand on this character of our God. And I would say, finally, that regardless of what's going on in each one of our lives now, the character of the God who reveals himself in this chapter also gives us solid ground to stand on. The character of God as we see it in this chapter should also fill us with joy and assure our hearts. Because even as a seemingly impossible birth to a barren woman in Judges pushes forward God's plan of salvation, preserving his promises and preserving his people, our minds should jump ahead a thousand and a few more years to another even more impossible birth. This time to a virgin who's not even married. When God, again, in his good and gracious sovereignty, brings about the climactic step in his plan of salvation. When she will again offer rescue and redemption to sinners, blindly going about their lives apart from God, without even realizing the desperate need they are in. You know, Dale Ralph Davis puts it well when he says, it boggles the imagination, nonetheless the mind, to think that something planned in the sovereignty of God before the foundation of the world could be done for my sake. But that's the consistent message of Scripture. From Genesis to Judges to Jesus. As Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, 18-20, Jesus himself was foreknown, that is, marked out before the foundation of the world for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, having been ransomed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If you have put your faith in this precious Jesus, then his blood cleanses you from sin and that was planned before the foundation of the world. And that's what this table before us reminds us this morning, isn't it? That Christ's body and blood were given for us in the willing plan of God to redeem any who will look to Jesus by faith though they were dead in their sin, without hope unless he acted to rescue us through the death and resurrection of his own son. And so as we come to the table this morning, may we marvel at such amazing love and may we respond with awed joy as we see God's character and God's salvation on display in the text before us and in the table before us to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, You have acted again and again and again throughout history to bring about a salvation you had planned before the the foundation of the world. What a blessing that we can come to such a salvation because of the work of Jesus Christ. And I pray now that the table in front of us would remind us of his body and his blood broken and shed for us that we might be saved from our sin rescued and redeemed and brought again into fellowship with you what a blessing what a joy we thank you in christ's name amen the westminster pulpit is courtesy of westminster presbyterian church in lancaster pennsylvania you are welcome to worship with us on sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m 
To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.